we have essentially chosen to finance growth and development from Wall Street, from Washington, D.C. on down, skewed the game in favor of people who can operate at a huge scale. And if we want to change that, we actually need to get our financing fixed at the local level so that local people wanting to do incrementally important things can do that with a limited amount of obstacles in their path. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. A little bit of uh, inside baseball in today's episode. After we got off the phone with today's guest, the first thing you said to me was we could have continued talking for two more hours. I was ready to go Joe Rogan on it. What do you mean by Joe Rogan? A uh, Joe Rogan podcast. It's always like three hours long. Yeah. It says things like, that's crazy, man. It always leads to monkeys and space and stuff like that. And I feel like we could have got there with this week's guest if we uh, just let it run. Today's show is an inspiring and maybe a bit controversial conversation about what kinds of towns and cities we want to live in. In a major way, this podcast has been about exploring places, and I don't think we've ever quite explored them in the way that today's guest has. Through his work, he gives us a framework to think about why our cities and towns are good or bad or profitable or unprofitable in a whole new way. My name is Chuck Marone. I'm actually the president of a nonprofit organization called Strong Towns. We are a media organization sharing a message about how our cities can become financially stronger and more prosperous. So first, a little background on Chuck, whose writing and podcast can be found at strongtowns.org. Super inspiring and fascinating website. So Chuck studied civil engineering in college before becoming a consultant for cities with, quote, infrastructure problems. And those range from anything from sewage breakdown to airport expansion needs. And while Chuck was engaged in relatively small problems like fixing a sewage plant, he started to see a much bigger problem, which I think it's fair to say is at the core of our society. So Ian, do you have any major takeaways before we jump into this, what was a really illuminating conversation? Yeah, well, what we're going to get into today is that a lot of the cities in the United States are starting to run in the red. The ways and the reasons in which these cities were built back after World War II, you know, there was a lot of federal funding rolling around and that's how a lot of these suburbs got built and that's how a lot of these cities got built. And now we're starting to see that infrastructure not being supported the same way that it was built, meaning some of this funding is starting to dry up, but yet us, the taxpayers who are living in these cities are now having to fund some of this infrastructure. Yeah. I mean, honestly, there's a, a lot of depressing news for US cities, but on the other side is some really exciting opportunities for entrepreneurs. You know, the reason why we had Chuck on the show and why this is interesting to us is because as location independent people, as people that can choose to live pretty much anywhere we want, we take great time and effort to understand the places that we want to live and invest there. 
Meaning like, it's not just like we're going to live anywhere. It's like I did a lot of research and thinking before I moved to Austin. You did the same with Barcelona. And so when we choose to live in these cities, there's a lot to consider. And I think what's interesting about Chuck and the work that he's doing is that he gives us a deeper understanding of some of the things that are going on below the surface why cities might not be doing so well financially, but also why cities are thriving. So it really helps me to understand, like, why do I like Austin? Well, these are some of the reasons why I like Austin. They invest in public infrastructure, like there's great parks here, for example. To give a metaphor, it's like you might listen to like a great song and just think it's a great song, but then a musician will come along and say, oh, well, the reason that works so well is because look what they did with the way the bass and the drums go together here. Exactly. Chuck sort of does that with cities. Like you might hang out in Austin and be like, wow, this is like a really amazing place. And Chuck's like, well, here's some of the the mechanisms or the systems in place that are contributing to that. And it's utterly fascinating for investors, for travelers, and for people making decisions about where they want to live and invest. One of Chuck's key theses here is that the infrastructure of the US is essentially broken and not cash flow positive. And this has been going on for decades. Something that Chuck first saw on a job he undertook early in his career in a small town called Reamer, Minnesota, where that city was forced to take a 40-year loan for hundreds of thousands of dollars to fix a problem that was essentially 300 feet of leaking pipe. This is an extreme example, but it's an example that illuminates the point. What was actually going on in this city is they didn't have enough private wealth. They didn't have enough value in their tax base. They didn't have enough wealth that they could tap through their taxing structure to actually pay for the infrastructure to support that town, to support that development pattern. There wasn't enough there. There was more private investment than there was public investment. And so what happens is you essentially go insolvent. You don't have the money to fix everything that you have committed to fixing and maintaining. This is, in a very small sense, what we see happening in a place like Detroit, where you have billions of dollars of public investment, you have declining tax base, and you essentially don't have enough wealth in the neighborhoods to actually go back and fix the streets, fix the sidewalks, fix the curb. When I started digging into this then, I started to realize that this is an epidemic. I mean, this is every city. We have done this everywhere. The Reamer example is an extreme case, but it's an extreme case that kind of opened my eyes to this broader problem. So you've described the way that Americans have built their society in basically post-World War II as an experiment. You write that no other society in the history of Earth has built their environment the way we've built ours. Have you had experiences in other countries that have informed this knowledge? Yes. In travel, I've been to Western Europe. So I've done the thing that every affluent college kid gets to do these days. I didn't get to do mine in college. I did mine as a young professional, but I made the trip to Europe. And that was, again, coming from a small town in central Minnesota, an eye-opener. Uh, I remember flying into Milan and they said, you know, out the left side of the window, you can see the city of Milan. And I looked out and I knew what big cities looked like because I had been to New York and I had been to Chicago. I'd been to LA. This did not look like a big city to me. Where were the skyscrapers? Where were the big buildings? So I realized there was a lot that I didn't know. And that kind of act of being humbled, 
the idea that there's stuff you don't know made me be able to question the things that I did know. When I'm out doing engineering projects and we say, well, how wide's the road? Well, here's how wide it is. Well, why do we do it that way? Well, that's the way we've always done it, Chuck. That's the way it's always been done. And you realize that the way things have always been done is actually a very short window of time. I mean, really post-World War II across the continent. If you actually ask how have the things always been done and go back even further, what you see is that for thousands and thousands of years before the early 1900s, we built cities in the same way everywhere around the world in different cultures and different continents and different climates. The architecture was different. You know, the building materials were different, but the basic layout and design was the same. And it was the same because, you know, people walked. And we can explain it like that. You know, people walk, so we built them one way. Now we drive, we build another. But what we have to grasp is that the knowledge for how to build a successful city around people who walked was knowledge that we gained through trial and error. I mean, we tried things out. When it worked, we kept it and we copied it. When it didn't work, people died. I mean, cities went under. Today, that knowledge that we apply to you know how wide a street should be, how big a curb radius should be, how we should lay out buildings in relation to another. None of that is based on thousands of years of trial and error. It's based on you know what some really smart people in some think tanks and universities thought should happen. And we just took those standards and applied them everywhere around the continent, all in a generation, and changed everything about not only the way we live, but the way we interact with each other, the way our economy functions, the way we tax, the way we relate socially. We changed all of that overnight. Today's episode of the TMBA podcast is sponsored by Growth Ninja. Big shout out and thanks to the folks at growthninja.com. Are you looking for a reliable and hands-off way to scale your company's revenue? Take a look at Growth Ninja a proven Facebook ad service. They'll handle your ads and audience targeting all the while actively optimizing your campaigns on a daily basis. Whether you're after lead generation or direct sales, Growth Ninja makes sure your Facebook ads are brutally effective. And here's the best part. Growth Ninja's fees are 100% performance-based. That means if you don't get paid, Growth Ninja doesn't get paid. They also offer a generous rewards program for any new clients you send their way. You'll receive 20% share of the monthly earnings your referral brings in. This means that some of the referrers are making thousands of dollars each month just from one simple intro email they sent ages ago. Go on. You know you want to check it out. Check out growthninja.com and mention the TMBA podcast for a special discounted rate. And again, a big thanks to Growth Ninja for sponsoring the show. Now, you write about our culture that we're so obsessed with moving cars and parking cars that we can't stop to consider what value a building provides for our society. Other cultures around the world have cars too. Why did things happen this way in America in your view? I've actually asked myself this question a lot because I'm, I'm an engineer and I'm a planner. I understand why engineers do it because, you know, this is the profession they're tasked with doing. 
you know, engineers don't really think about the built environment because everything that we work on is in between what we call the right of way, what normal people call, you know, the streets or the buildings or what have you. You give someone a hammer and every project looks like a nail. You give the budget to the engineer and every problem looks like an engineering problem. After World War II, we culturally were freaked out about the idea of going back into depression. And the theories at the time were without the ongoing stimulus of war spending, we were just going to go right back to where we were in the 30s. And that freaked everybody out. And so when all of a sudden we took that collective energy that we had been spending fighting the Nazis and the Japanese, and we converted that into essentially building America, what we found is that we could create all kinds of growth really quickly. We could run highways between cities. We could run highways through the middle of cities. We could spread things out and we could create in a very like kind of instant pop-up way, GDP growth. And GDP growth, especially at the time, equated to individual prosperity, families getting wealthier, businesses getting more successful, opportunity. I think we just enshrined that notion into our psyche. There weren't a lot of things to push back on it. Now today, when we do those same exact things, we go out and build a new suburb, we have to do it based on the backs of debt, debt for the government, debt for families, debt for future generations. We have to do it on the backs of cities taking on enormous liabilities. So the city has to agree, despite the tax base not being there, that we'll fix all these roads and all these streets and all this curb. And so what we see is that the drag financially that comes with this approach is just so great. The, the returns are so diminished that they're actually negative now on these transactions. You call this the growth Ponzi scheme. There's this axiom that I always heard as an engineer. And then when I started working as a planner, heard a lot as well, but in a little bit different framework. And that axiom goes like this. If your city is not growing, you're dying. And really that struck home because we could look around and we could see cities that weren't continually adding new things, building new streets, adding new homes, adding new commercial businesses. Those were the ones that were in like terminal decline. And when I started looking into this, I realized that, first of all, cities should not fail if they stop growing. An analogy would be someone walking or someone riding a bike. If you stop moving forward when you're walking, you don't collapse. But if you stop moving forward when you're riding a bike, you tip over. And essentially, why do cities function like a bike and not like a person standing? It's because embedded in the way we build is this growth, stagnation, and decline cycle. And I think the easiest way to understand it is this. When you go out and build a new residential neighborhood, you'll maybe build, depending on the size of your city, 20 homes within a couple of years, or you'll build 200 homes within a couple of years, or you'll build 2,000 homes within a couple of years. So you'll have this huge place that looks like success today. And it will be brand new and it will provide a bunch of tax base. And for the city, it will provide a bunch of tax revenue. 30 years later, everybody's roof is going to go bad at the same time. Everybody's driveway is going to start to go bad at the same time, right? Everybody's appliances are going to fail within two or three years of each other in this narrow window. And today, our development pattern doesn't have a way to essentially renew itself. There's nobody that's going to go in and say, oh, I've got a single family home here in decline. Why don't I buy it and convert it into a duplex? We don't have that mechanism. That's not allowed today under most of our codes. So what you see in modern development is you see this period of growth, then an extended period of stagnation, and then essentially rapid decline. 
the way we've chosen to deal with that is to go get more growth, right? We haven't chosen to deal with the stagnation or decline part. What we've chosen to do is deal with the growth. We can go get more growth. And if we get growth, we won't be dying. And so you have this mad rush to how do we get more growth in our cities? And it leads to what I've called this Ponzi scheme. We've got to keep growing so that we can go back and make good on all these promises we made a generation ago. So Chuck, it seems like one of the solutions that you just pointed out there is a better zoning system. Why do you feel like that's the answer to not having to continuously build? A little bit about zoning. You know, we created modern zoning. And if you go back to these thousands of years I alluded to where we developed in a different way, they didn't have zoning the way we think of it now. They had basically an accepted way of building that people followed. And they followed it not because of social pressure or because they were benevolent or what have you. They followed it because it made the most sense for them. It was a development approach that optimized what was good for the individual with what was good for the community. If you were going to build a residence on a street, or if you were going to build a commercial building 200 years ago in a town, what would you have done? You would have lined it up with everyone else. You would have, you know, had your building face the street. It would have been symmetrical. It would have had a nice front. It would have done all those things because that's what would have built wealth for you. Incidentally, that's what made every building around you wealthier too. Today, if you're going to build, what do you do? You build way back. You put a big parking lot. You have the most obnoxious sign on the block so you can shout out everybody else, right? You tear down the building next to you for a parking lot so you got plenty of parking. And basically, we've created a development pattern where everyone is an island unto themselves. Zoning has codified that. I see. And maybe because people were walking down the street, of course, you wouldn't want it 150 feet off the street because then you're not accessible. But now we've got these cars. And so we're driving there. And it doesn't really matter if the buildings don't line up exactly. Precisely. We experience cities at you know 30 miles an hour now instead of two. And when you do that, the interaction between what is built and the public space that we're in is very different. And it creates a different set of incentives. And so to get back on your point on codifying zoning or zoning codifying the situation, what happened there? What we did is we, you know, in response to some really nasty situations, you know, rendering plants, going in across the street from apartments and things like this, we created this mechanism of zoning. We came up with the notion that, you know, little houses should be in a different place than bigger houses should be in a different place than even bigger houses. If you're going to have a store of a certain size, it should be in a different place from all of them. We came up with this notion of separating everything and then, you know, driving in between. And what we've done in coordination with this idea of growth, stagnation, and decline is we've created clusters of development, commercial, residential, that by their very internal nature have this period of success where they outwardly look successful and they provide great cash flow. They have this period of stagnation where they kind of hold their own for a while, but are not necessarily like the best place to be. And then they have this rapid decline. Without the mechanism of essentially a community being attached to other places that are experiencing value and investment, they're an island unto themselves. And these places tend to get into decline and stay in decline. And the only way they are rescued is by heroic, heroic intervention, largely by the government through some type of tax subsidy. And that's just not scalable. Yeah. 
Chuck, one of the interesting things that I think you bring up is that it may be the case that the people that are benefiting from the way that we're organizing our towns and our cities are not necessarily the people that are living there. What kind of relationship have you found these people to have? And when I say these people, I mean developers, I mean people that are building the houses, people that are providing the infrastructure. You know, what relationship do these people have with the city's governments that are running these towns? It's a dysfunctional and predatory relationship. But I also would say, you know, cities don't have a lot of choices today, at least not unless they're willing to really be proactive. If you want to be a developer today, we could all be developers today, but we're not going to be developers that will be listed on the New York Stock Exchange. We're not going to be accessing the massive, massive housing market that the typical developers are able to tap into today. We would be doing something very marginal and very different. The thing is that in government, we tend to treat them both the same. And in fact, I would go so far as to say we treat the large developer in a privileged sense. If you're going to go build a greenfield development on the edge of town, we have a really simple, easy process for you to follow. You can come in, you can get a quick approval. We can get you out there and get you building. You can go to the bank and you can get financing for all of that. You can get lots of liquidity from Wall Street. When you get the homes done, we have really easy products for your buyers to get into. And so we make that a really streamlined, easy process. Now, let's say that one of us decides, you know, we're going to buy the house across the street that's gone into foreclosure. We're going to put some sweat equity into it to try to make it into a duplex. And then we're going to rent one out and sell the other one or rent them both out. In my city, you would have months and months of public hearings. We'd invite all the neighbors in and have them comment on it. They would you know, voice all their objections over parking and, and what have you. We would have a whole set of rules that you would have to follow regarding stormwater runoff, even though there's a stormwater pipe that is paid for in front of the house. We would have all these things in place that if they do exist out on the edge, you know, the big corporate developer with the team of engineers and lawyers and, and whatever can get past. But you as the individual trying to make your neighborhood work is just going to be overwhelmed by. By the way we have chosen to finance growth and development from Wall Street, from Washington, D.C. on down, skewed the game in favor of people who can operate at a huge scale. And if we want to change that, we actually need to get our financing fixed at the local level so that local people wanting to do incrementally important things can do that with a limited amount of obstacles in their path. And so what's the way forward for that? Is it educating these people that are running the city's P&L and balance sheet? I think there's a short-term and there's a long-term aspect to this. I think short-term is a really uphill battle for cities. I think that there are some exciting new crowdfunding techniques that can be used. But I think for the most part, cities need to try to cultivate their own local development pool. There's a group out there now today that we're very friendly with called the Incremental Development Alliance. And they're trying to train thousands of small developers around the country. I think getting a relationship with them and implementing some of their recommendations, like getting rid of minimum parking standards, making permitting for simple things a lot easier to do. I think we need to do those things in the short term. It's not obvious to me why minimum parking standards would be a problem for a community. Okay. If you say to Walmart, you've got to provide a minimum amount of parking, Walmart just goes out and buys enough land to put in that parking. It's not a big deal for them. If you tell the local store owner, you know, even though half of your business or more is within walking distance of your place, 
you've got to provide the same essentially percentage of parking for floor area as a Walmart. And in fact, we actually often require even more per square foot of floor area than a Walmart for a local shop. All of a sudden that local shop, you got to go buy your next door neighbor and you got to tear down their business and you got to, you know, spend a whole bunch of money building parking. And that takes out of your ability to buy merchandise, to improve your own shop, to, you know, pay people to do all the other things that would make your business successful. It creates a huge drag on that small business owner. You've told a story of how Spain essentially squandered its riches on an inefficient federal system, essentially, I guess that's the way to say it. The next slide, I've watched many of your presentations and read your articles, and the next slide is like kind of the analog of like, look at this next great empire and look at how we've laid out our inefficient system. It does seem like because things have happened so quickly and at such scale that we're headed towards some sort of calamitous situation. In fact, you got put on my radar recently when one of your articles was essentially sharing how small towns are going bankrupt and how this is endemic across the nation. Do you feel we're headed towards some sort of reckoning here? Yes. And it's kind of hard. I've had to, there's a certain amount of collapse kind of sense in me that I have to kind of push to the rear sometimes because it's a hard place to start a conversation with people. And when you go in and you say something, and I, I truly believe this, that Detroit is the destiny of most American cities. When you start with that, people just stop listening to you. So I have to start in different places and explain the underlying mechanisms. But when you look at Detroit... For maybe foreign listeners, you might just give a little overview of why Detroit would be an example. If you go back to the early 1900s, Detroit was one of the you know jewel cities of North America. It was one of the top five cities, certainly in the world, in terms of elegance and wealth and opulence. I mean, it, I was in Detroit a couple of years ago in some of the old theaters that they had. And I mean, you walk in there, and you're like, am, am I in Milan? You know, am I in one of the great cities of Europe? It is an amazing, amazing amount of wealth that was there. Detroit in the early 1900s, the auto city, you know, the auto capital of America, essentially started to build the American experiment ahead of everybody else. They were the first ones to run the highways through the middle of the city. They were the first ones to run the highways out to the edge. They were the first one to build beltways. They were the first one to take their population and spread them out over this broad area. And when we look at it, Detroit experienced amazing growth and prosperity from doing that. And there was a reason why after World War II, we all started to build this way. We looked at Detroit and we saw that Detroit did this and it worked out really well for them. And we should all try to be more like Detroit. Every city ran the highways through the middle of the city. Every city knocked down buildings to build parking ramps. Every city built commuter suburbs. What we find now in Detroit It's simple math. You take a population and you spread them out over a broad area. What you do is you don't necessarily increase the wealth, the top line, but what you do is you increase the bottom line, the expense massively, not only at the individual level, but at the city level. So now everybody has a long commute. Everybody has the ante of driving. Everybody has to maintain their portion of roads and streets and sidewalks and pipes. And now all of a sudden, instead of having... The wealth of the community have to, I want to say the ratios that I saw were 1940, the typical resident had about five feet of pipe that was needed. You know, when you aggregate all the pipe in the city and divide by the number of residents, about five foot of pipe per person. 
Now it's 20 times more. It's like 100. You look at this and you say, okay, now the same amount of wealth has to essentially maintain 20 times more infrastructure, 20 times more system, 20 times more stuff. And it just doesn't work. Like the ratios don't work. So when you look at Detroit, what you can see is a place that experienced that growth, stagnation. And then when they hit the decline, people just moved on to the next place and moved on and moved on and moved on and left all these neighborhoods in terminal decline without enough wealth, but with enormous liabilities to them. When we start looking at cities around the world, and we've done some pretty detailed financial modeling, what we see is that instead of, and we describe this in terms of ratio between private wealth and public wealth, instead of a healthy ratio of about 20 to one. So for every $20 of private investment you've got, you've got $1 of public investment that has to be supported. We actually see cities that are the inverse. For every $1 private investment, it takes $2 of public investment in roads and streets and sewer and infrastructure to make that happen. That is a terminal relationship. You can't have that relationship and keep a city functioning. And when we look at the cities of North America, they're all in that state. They are all, with very, very few exceptions, in that condition where there's not enough private wealth to actually sustain all the public investments that are in place. Now, listening to all this, you might think that Chuck is committed to cities that only prioritize the regeneration of urban centers over the continual creation of the new suburbs and out-of-town developments and the infrastructure that it takes to serve them. I think it would be unfair to pigeonhole Chuck as like just a city guy or that he has got this really specific idea of how things ought to be. I think his view is very holistic. Yeah, and in fact, he was raised on a farm. And for the first 20 years of his married life, Chuck and his wife lived on what he describes as a five-acre suburban lot in the middle of nowhere, which, <laughs> by the way, turned out to be a terrible investment. Yeah, it's only in the last few years that they've moved to an early 20th century house, six blocks from the center of Brainerd, Minnesota. So he's experienced, you know, the viability and quality of both ways of life. You can look right now today. I've got on my table the proposed projects in the trillion dollar Trump infrastructure plan. These are all under the guise of if we build more stuff, we'll get more growth and more growth will be better for everyone. And the reality is if we actually look at cities, what we see is that the investments that actually build wealth in a place are ones that get at the core of quality of life. And those are investments that are really small and really kind of esoteric. So things like from a physical standpoint, putting in crosswalks and street trees and making it a little bit easier to cross the street. From a social standpoint, doing things like fixing up parks and holding festivals and having outside movie night and you know doing things to get people together. From an economic standpoint, instead of building the big box store on the edge, having the, the microbrew in town and the little coffee shop and the things that add to the quality of life of people living in those neighborhoods. I would argue in, in my little small town here, having the church six blocks from my house, which I really deeply value as part of my experience, is a lot more valuable than me than being able to drive to the big church on the edge with a big parking lot. I think that there are ways to reach a whole broad cross-section of people in our cities today based on the quality of life that they live. And we can do this on a really, from a city standpoint, on a really affordable kind of low-risk budget instead of obsessing over, you know, how do we get the new big business park on the edge of town? Or where can we get the big federal grant to build a bunch more infrastructure? Do you feel like people are starting to understand that? And when I say like people, I mean, people that are 
part of these communities, do you think that they're starting to say, you know what, I don't want to buy from that builder 20 miles outside of town. Like I'd rather live inside of town because they have movie night and things like that. Because that, in my mind, that's really what's going to cause part of this shift, right? Is that people start to deny these builders of the opportunity to sell them houses. I think that you're seeing the two mobile markets today changing their preferences from a consumer standpoint. So I'm 43. People in my generation are stuck, right? They have jobs, they have mortgages, they have kids in school. They're basically like molded in place. But you go the generation ahead of me and the generation behind me, those people have immense amounts of flexibility. The baby boomers and the near retirees, they have some assets, some discretionary income. They basically have a higher net worth. They're looking to downsize. They're losing, the kids are moved out. Hopefully they've got jobs now. And they're actually looking at lifestyle type choices, as opposed to how do we manufacture kids and pump them out and get them on their way. Younger people, millennials, and people even you know younger, don't have the deep ties and the roots and the mortgages and the kids in school, and they're flexible too. When we look at those two generations, what we see is an incredibly strong preference, not for stuff, but for experience. Not for how big of a house can I have, but where is it going to be located and what is that going to get me access to? I think the very smart developers have recognized this over the past decade. You're now starting to see the smart cities recognize it, and bureaucracies are starting to change in response. At the government level, it's a lot harder, though. It's a lot harder to make that shift. But I think the private sector is is really driving it. You go to a place like Asheville. If you go back to Asheville, North Carolina, 30 years ago, it was a dive. I mean, it was a, I've seen all the pictures and, and all the stuff. It was not a great place. Go to Asheville now. Everybody is leaving Austin because it's become yeah. too big to move to places like Asheville. Asheville is a lot of what I have had reported to me what Austin was like a decade ago. It, it's a collection of f- funky and kind of fun. And, you know, I've had the, the opportunity to hang out in Asheville quite a bit. And it's a lifestyle choice that is really about having a great quality of life. You know, a lot of the people that listen to this show are entrepreneurs, and a lot of those people work online. And so we kind of have the choice to fortunately live where we want to live and participate in the communities that we want to participate in. Dan and I have been fortunate enough to live a lot of different places around the world, but kind of as a tourist in most instances, because we're swooping in for several months or even several years, not really participating in the local economy so much or even getting involved in politics or anything like that. I would imagine the majority of your audience is people that are, for lack of a better term, stuck in these towns or stuck in these types of situations because they have to have a job, they have to commute to work and things like that. But just talking a little bit about the future, because you brought up millennials and people that are older, I think that there's something on the horizon here, and I'm interested to hear your thoughts on it, but my guess is five to 10 years from now, the inevitability will be that we are not driving cars ourselves. There might be cars on the road, but we're not driving them. And so what happens then to all this parking that we don't need because these cars are in service for 24 hours a day and these drones that are delivering packages? I mean, this might all be getting too futuristic, but is it? I mean, should we be planning for these kinds of scenarios? It's really interesting because I'm not a kind of rabid booster of the autonomous car going to change the world. I, I get it and I understand. I mean, I was an early embracer of the smartphone and I, I had I had the PDA back when they had the- uh, The stylus? The stylus. Oh yeah, no, that was me. I'm an early adopter. But I look at the physical impediments that our cities face 
and the massive kind of uphill climb we have just to keep from going backward in many ways. I mean, the, these huge backlogs of infrastructure maintenance and the idea that we're somehow going to be able to you know, transform our cities is one that I struggle with. Maybe San Francisco, maybe New York, maybe Washington, D.C., maybe Vancouver. I'm not going to argue that those places aren't dynamic enough to do this. But if you go to Omaha and Kansas City, and and I would argue Dallas and and even Austin to a a degree, Austin has a massive, massive backlog of maintenance. I mean, it's, it's, it's insane, despite the growth, how deeply insolvent a city like Austin is. Are they going to be able to transform themselves in the face of this new technology? I I don't know. I don't know. Will the technology have other impacts such as now all of a sudden that entry-level job of a taxi driver, the ability to make a living doing that, a truck driver, are those jobs losses going to be so pronounced in our cities that it's going to have a large social upheaval? I think those are legitimate questions. I do think that the one bit of the technology that gives me pause and it's because I know enough to be dangerous, but not enough to really solve anything, is the idea that the Google car, the autonomous car, is going to work really well on the open road. In other words, if you're driving on a highway and the number of variables coming at you from each side is limited and predictable, you can write algorithms to deal with that. If you're in an urban neighborhood where you know, you've know you got everything from the person who randomly opens their car door to the kid who runs out in the street with following the ball to you know all the other like random things that happen in a neighborhood. I've seen these cars struggle to deal with that. The solution to that is one of two things. One, you either slow the cars way, way, way down. Your reaction time can be slower because essentially the level of risk is slower. Or you do things like create barriers to keep the complexity out. And that's actually one of the ideas that's been floated. And I think that would be a huge barrier to that quality of life equation and to making our cities fantastic places. Imagine if on the edge of the street, instead of having a sidewalk where you could just walk out onto the street, you actually had a wall along the edge of the street or a fence to keep you from going out and interfering with the autonomous cars. That's actually an idea that's been floated and that would kill our cities. If you have the suburban people dominate the autonomous car conversation, that's the kind of solution you'll get. If you have the urban people dominate it, I think you'll get slower traffic, which would be better for everybody in in many ways. I think that the healthy way to think about this is really the way to think about development in Europe versus development in in the United States. In Europe, they essentially said, and after World War II, a lot of European cities were completely destroyed. I mean, they were leveled. They could have easily built in the style of development that American cities are built in. They easily could have. And they said, nope, this is the way our cities are built. This is the way we're going to build them. And they put them back the way they were. And then they said, in this framework, we are going to accommodate automobiles. And some have gone on in the 70s and later to say, we're going to focus on accommodating people. And that means sometimes it will be buses and sometimes it will be bikes and and sometimes cars will take a back seat to that. But essentially the idea was the city form is here and then we are going to make the transportation system adaptive to that. In the U.S., we went the opposite way. We said, here's the transportation technology, and now we're going to adapt the city 
to that technology. And so we widened out the streets, we took out buildings, we, you know, did all this stuff in essentially subservience to the transportation technology. The thing that freaks me out about the autonomous car debate is that we're starting here in America with the same mentality. Essentially, the transportation technology will drive the land use conversation. And at the end of the day, what we really need is great cities, great communities, great neighborhoods where people want to be, being served by the best transportation technology for them. I think if we start with that, we're going to end up in a a really great place, whether it's autonomous vehicles or not. It sounds like there's reason to be optimistic, despite somewhere in the middle of this conversation, I got really depressed. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let me put the pessimistic and then the optimistic spin on it. I think that in many ways, Detroit is the destiny for many of our cities. This process of essentially ending this experiment and reckoning with the bad predicament that we put ourselves in is going to be essentially a defining feature of the next 30 years. It's going to be something all cities are going to go through. And it's going to have winners and losers, people who end up in a really great place, people who end up in a really desperate situation. I think being aware of it now is going to help us navigate it in a way that is less harmful. But once we go through this, and even as we experience it, I think what you see is that we're actually, at the end of the day, enjoying a higher quality of life. We're building better places. These are places that are more respectful of people. They actually are more human. They're more genuine. I think we can start to reestablish good social connections. I think we can start to live healthier lives physically, spiritually, socially. I don't think that's going to come without pain, and I don't think that's going to come without a cost, but I think we can ultimately get there. And so I look at the challenge not as, you know, pending doom. I look at it as more like the pain of a birthing process or the pain of exercise, you know, you go through this and you get to a better place. I kind of feel like that's the kind of transition we're going to go through. I would say though, and I think there'll probably be some in my audience that would push back and say, well, Chuck, that's great. And for the affluent, it will work well. For the poor, it's going to be really brutal. I tend to agree with that analysis. I think what we see right now today is that our cities historically were, and this is going to sound very coarse, our cities throughout all of human history were wealthy people surrounded by poor people. In the 1950s and 60s, America put trillions of dollars into inverting that So we became cities of poor people surrounded by wealthy people. And we are now seeing a natural process of inversion where cities are going back to being wealthy people surrounded by poor people. I think the challenge of the next generation is going to be not only how to deal with that transition, which is good and healthy, and I think going to lead us to a better place, but also to do it in a way that does not leave people behind or dislocate them into places where they can easily be marginalized. I think that is going to be a social challenge that will take the challenges we experienced in the 60s in regards to race and class and essentially magnify them and make them one of the the major challenges of our age. Chuck, do you have just a couple of minutes to talk about your organization? Because I want to hear more about Strong Towns and how you started that and what your organization looks like. I started writing a blog back when I was running my own planning firm. And the blog was to discuss these issues. They were basically kind of a voice in the wilderness saying like, look, I'm being rejected by the people around me and my professional colleagues. Here's what I'm seeing. Is anybody out there? Does anybody, you know, see the same kind of thing? And all of a sudden the the readership took off in ways that I never would have envisioned. And we started to see a real robust conversation around this message. 
I was encouraged to start a nonprofit. A couple of friends of mine helped me do that. Once I got it up and running, I had a foundation approach me and give me three years of startup money. Since then, we've continued to kind of discover what we're best at and had some realizations that what we are best at is communicating ideas to a broad cross-section of America, not necessarily elected officials or professionals, although we welcome them into our conversation, but just everyday people who are frustrated, bewildered, curious about the places they live and how they can make them better. We use writing, we use podcasting, we use video, we use every method that we can find to communicate this message about how cities can make lower risk investments in quality of life improvements that will make neighborhoods better, will make families better, and will make everybody wealthier and more prosperous. And we can do that on on very limited budgets. We just have to shift our thinking. At what point in your personal journey did you decide that it was more important to do this kind of work versus being a uh, civil engineer? Because it doesn't seem like you're a civil engineer anymore. I'm not. And this was a really, you're asking a deeply personal question because I struggled with this for a long time. You know, there's a couple paths here. I think I have to give credit to my wife for being supportive of what was really a, a crazy path. I was making good money running my own planning company. I have had, you know, lots of job offers in the three figures to do engineering work that would be very beneficial for my family and paying for my kids' college and all that. You mentioned earlier, I don't want to say the word prepper, but the idea that like there's this existential crisis out there and you see it and you like have to do something about it. And I've known people who have gone through that and it almost like it consumes them in their life. And for me, discovering the fact that the stuff that I was working on and building was actually making America a weaker, less prosperous country, that it was actually hurting our families, it struck me in a very deep and personal way. And I found it hard to change the subject. I found it hard to get my mind off of it. And so this calling of mine has really been, in a way, a true passion, but it's also been a way for me to deal with the reality around me. I joke my wife, like the lack of income for many years was in some ways cheaper than having a good job, but having to pay a therapist what it would have cost for me to work out these issues, you know, in private somewhere. So yeah, I feel blessed today to be making a good living, being able to share these ideas with people. And I feel doubly blessed by having this network of literally thousands of people around the country that are now having this conversation and really informing me and teaching me things on a daily basis so that I can help get this message out. We'd love to know what you think about strong town style thinking. We're going to have the show notes to this one, the links to things we talked about at tropicalmba.com slash strongtowns. And you can read the blog at strongtowns.org. It's really been one of my favorite reads over the last few months. It's such a diverse topic, right? It affects everything. There's articles on there for everything from the self-driving car stuff to the viability of main streets to retail versus Amazon it's really diverse and it really gets you thinking. And if there's other guests or topics that you'd like us to cover on the show, let us know because that's how Chuck and Strong Towns came to our attention. And we are very glad for that. I'd love to continue this conversation about fascinating ways to think about place and uh, our cities and towns. Strong Towns V2. Strong Towns. <laughs> All right. We'll be back next week, Thursday morning. Thank you for joining us. 
Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.